opportunity to share God's word with you again. Um, my name is Deborah, or Debs, um, and as I say, it's a real privilege to be able to bring God's word this morning. Um, it's my first time speaking in uh, Hidden Gardens, I have to say. Hillcrest was nice because we were like down there somewhere. Now it feels like I'm very far away, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, it shall be well. I also keep thinking every time somebody stands up to preach that we need a clock, because the danger is we just keep speaking and speaking and speaking. Um, but hopefully that won't happen today either. Um, so today we're picking up, uh, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel and we're picking up at chapter 5. Um, and last week's sermon was death and destruction, really. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say this week isn't much different. Um, usually, it's the Israelites, God's chosen people, um, at the center of the story, battling between their own pride and sinfulness and the wholeness of what God desires for them. But today, they don't even feature. In fact, this whole chapter is about the Ark of the God of Israel or the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but let's pray as we begin to dive in, um, and then we're going to read our scripture together. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for gathering us in this place this morning. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that you surround us, that you hold us close, that you want to whisper to our hearts and our ears and our minds the words that you have for us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we share the scriptures together, as I speak, that it would be your words, your heart, that it would be your message to us. Lord, we just pray that you would speak to each and every one of us, draw us closer to you, deeper in our understanding of who you are and how much you love us. Be with us this morning, we pray. Amen. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Odeki, who's going to read for us the scripture this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 5. It should be on the screen or you can follow along on your own Bible. Good morning, church. Uh, today's reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 5. Um, as Deb has said, we're reading from the New Living Translation, the Ark in Philistia. After the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they took it from the battleground at Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. They carried the Ark of God into the temple of Dagon and placed it beside an idol of Dagon. But when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him in his place again. But the next morning, the same thing happened again. Dagon had fallen face down before the ark of the Lord. This time, his head and hands had broken off and they were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor anyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod will step on its threshold. Then the Lord's heavy hand struck the people of Ashdod and the nearby villages with a plague of tumors. 
When the people realized what was happening, they cried out, we can't help the ark, we can't keep the ark of God of Israel here any longer. He's against us. We will all be destroyed along with Dagon, our God. So they called together the rulers of, Philist of the Philistine towns and asked, what should we do with the ark of God of Israel? The, ru the rulers discussed it and replied, move it to the town of Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel to Gath. But when the ark arrived at Gath, the Lord's heavy hand fell on its men, young and old. He struck them with a plague of tumors, and there was great panic. So they sent the ark of God to the town of Ekron. But when the, Lord, the people of Ekron saw it coming, they cried out, they are bringing the ark of God of Israel to kill us too. The people summoned the Philistine rulers and again begged them, please send the ark of God to Israel the, sorry, please send the ark of the God of Israel back to its own country, for it will kill us all. From, for the deadly plague from God had already begun, and great fear was sweeping across the town. Those who didn't die were afflicted with tumors, and the cry from the town rose to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Adeki. So, another nice, happy, cheery passage this morning. Um, last week, as we looked at chapter 4, we heard how the Israelites had arrogantly taken the precious ark into the battlefield, like some magical good luck charm that would automatically give them victory in battle. Essentially, they were trying to manipulate God to give them the victory, but they failed, perhaps because they had mistakenly shifted their focus from God to this symbol that was made to represent him. And as Faith shared last week, they put their faith in that symbol instead of in God, and it did not end well. The ark was captured by Israelites' enemy number one, the Philistines. This must have been devastating. In fact, Eli, the priest who was featured heavily in the first four chapters of 1 Samuel, literally falls over and dies when he hears the news that the ark has been captured. His daughter-in-law, whose husband died in the same battle and was due to give birth around this time, it, it tells us in chapter 4, verse 21, that she was so devastated by the capture of the ark that she dies in childbirth and names her child Ichabod, which means the glory of God is gone. Losing the ark was a devastating loss. And it seems to me, like the Israelites lost more than a precious symbol, they lost God himself. Perhaps like that old song by Counting Crows, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. The Philistines were Israel's arch nemesis and they stole the ark. What's the big deal, you might ask? It's just a box, a very pretty, ornate one, but just a box. But no, it wasn't just a box. As Faith hinted at last week, the ark was an intricately, meticulously designed representation of God's presence. It wasn't designed by the Israelites or by Moses, but by God himself. There are seven whole chapters in Exodus dedicated to the design specs for the tabernacle, which was the tent in which the ark was to be placed and the ark itself. The tabernacle was intended to be this place where the Israelites met with God. The Hebrew word for the tabernacle was mishkan, meaning dwelling. 
It was a place of God's dwelling, the place where God lived. Its design was detailed and intentional and offered space for the Hebrews to worship, to make offerings to God as mapped out in their law. And it was divided into three parts. So there was the outer courtyard, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. Now the outer courtyard was for everyone, all Jews, except menstruating women. That's a conversation for another day. The holy place in the middle was for regular priests, and the holy of holies was only accessible by the high priest, one guy, and then only accessible one day of the entire year for a very specific ceremony. The room was a perfect cube, 15 feet in each direction, and only one object was kept there, the Ark of the Covenant. There was no light inside the chamber that was the Holy of Holies, other than the glow from God's glory, and a thick veil or curtain embroidered was separated the holy place and the holy of holies. The entire design of the tabernacle and the ark which sits at its heart actually are representative of the Garden of Eden. You remember the Garden of Eden where God and humans were most intimate at the time of creation, where our relationship with God was untainted, where we were fully with God and he was fully with us. And the ark is intended to represent that same intimacy with God. Tim Mackey, a theologian who runs the Bible project that many of you might be familiar with, says this. Every element of the tabernacle structure is meant to draw ancient Israelites and readers of the scripture back to the Eden narrative. When humans enter the earthly tabernacle, they're meant to realize that they're inhabited inhabiting two spaces at once, heaven and earth. Every element of the tabernacle structure represents some element that would draw people back to the Eden, the creation narrative. From its three-tiered structure that mimics the ancient Hebrew conception of the garden, to the cherubim or the angels carved by the entrance, to its furniture that represented different elements of the garden. In a way, Tim says, when we see moments in the Bible where a place represents Eden, this is actually Eden reappearing. Eden isn't just a place where heaven and earth symbolically meet. It's a place where literally heaven and earth are one, which is why it rematerializes in other locations throughout the story of Scripture. At the conclusion of these detailed chapters in Exodus, where God shares the design for the tabernacle and the ark, he says, in Exodus 29, verses 45 to 46, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This idea of God pursuing the restoration of the Eden relationship with his people is something we see repeated throughout the Old Testament. The Garden of Eden was the place of creation where, as humanity, we were still perfect, made in God's image and living in perfect harmony with all of nature and in close intimacy with God. 
large parts of the Old Testament are these repeated cycles of God pursuing the restoration of that intimacy, pursuing reconciliation with humankind. And sadly, each cycle features humankind messing up. From the creation story itself in the Garden of Eden to Noah's Ark, to God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt, to the building of the tabernacle and ark, and of course, this story in our passage, 1 Samuel 5, this cycle is repeated, God reaching out, us making a mess. Until the scriptures begin to weave this theme of an ultimate savior, a Messiah, the highest priest, who will come once and for all and rescue all of God's people. This, of course, becomes reality in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, where he reconciles us to God with finality. We read about this in the New Testament. It's often referred to as the era of the new covenant, in which Jesus ushers in new ways of knowing God, new ways of entering his presence, new ways of dwelling intimately with him, new ways of experiencing his holiness. So much so that as Jesus takes his final breath on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, we read, then Jesus shouted out again and he released his spirit. At that very moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple, this curtain that was between the holy place and the holy of holies, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain is what hid the ark away designed to keep the glory of God hidden from human sight, designed to confine God's presence, designed to contain God's power, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom at the point of Jesus' death. A new covenant was birthed, one which grants us access to the holy of holies, one that grants us access to meet with God and indeed one in which the holy of holies can permeate every part of the earth, every human heart, every dark place. At that point of Jesus' death, that ultimate act of redemption and restoration, the curtain that kept people out of the holy of holies is torn in two. From the Old Testament to the new, God's character is unchanging and his pursuit of us is relentless. It's relentless because it's his very character. It's the essence of who he is and what he created us for. There's nothing that can change that. This biblical narrative of God pursuing relationship with us, seeking to restore, him, to restore us to himself, is who God is. So back to this passage we've read this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 5 and this same ark the one that should be kept inside the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest sees it only once a year, this ark is dragged into the battlefield and is captured by the Philistines. What happens next? Well, we read in chapter 5 that the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant to Dagon's temple in Ashdod. Ashdod was one of the towns uh, where the Philistines lived, and, and Dagon was the biggest and best of the Philistine gods, their chief god, as it were. Now, in those days, it was common practice for one people to capture another people's gods, 
usually the gods represented by some kind of statue or idol. And it was understood that when a people whose gods were in enemy's hands were completely defeated, completely conquered, that their gods were inferior and the gods were also captured. And with the Ark of the Covenant in Dagon's temple, it looked like the God of Israel had been squashed by the God of the Philistines. Capturing somebody's God in this way implied that you had dominated your enemies so thoroughly that you were even able to take their God away from them and force their God to submit to your God. However, when the Philistines woke up the next morning and came into the temple of Dagon, they found the statue of Dagon, this most powerful god of theirs, bowed face down on the ground. Now, maybe they thought it was a little bit strange. Maybe they just figured it toppled over somehow. Maybe they thought more of it. Maybe they didn't. But they propped Dagon back up. And when they returned again the next day, Dagon was on the ground again. And this time, his head and his arms were cut off. Now, to someone living in this time, that had a very specific meaning. When you were in battle, and you had killed somebody in battle, you cut off their heads and their arms to show that you had conquered. So somehow, between these two apparently inanimate objects, the statue of Dagon and the Ark of the God of Israel, something very strange was happening. The temple of Dagon, as I said, was in the town of Ashdod. And verse 6 says that, Then the Lord's heavy hand struck the people of Ashdod with a plague of tumors. Now, early Greek versions of the Bible add, as if a plague of tumors was not horrific enough, and rats appeared in their land and death and destruction were throughout the city. So it's not a pretty picture. The people of Ashdod seemed to quickly understand that this was an act of the God of Israel, and they cried out for the ark to be dealt with. As a result, the leaders decided that the ark should be moved to the town of Gath. However, in verse 9 we read, When the ark arrived at Gath, the Lord's heavy hand fell on its men, young and old, and he struck them with a plague of tumors, and there was great panic. Now next was the town of Ekron, And you guessed it, same story. In fact, the news must have spread because the outcry in Ekron started before the ark even arrived. Verse 10 says, fear was sweeping across the the town. Then the chapter ends with these words, those who didn't die were afflicted with tumors and the cry from the town rose to heaven. Nice, happy ending. So what's God trying to tell us here? This chapter seems to show us that the presence of the ark, crafted to symbolize God's glory, his majesty, his holiness and awesome presence, were now bringing horrific death and destruction wherever it went. Not exactly the uplifting message we were hoping to hear at church this morning. Perhaps not what we want to take with us into a new week. But here's what I think we learn from this story. Three things in particular. The first is that we shouldn't joke with God's holiness. The scriptures repeatedly tell us we should fear God. Now, that's not meant to mean we should be scared of God or fear him the way we would an oppressive boss or an abusive father, but in a way that acknowledges the majesty of God, 
the ultimate power of God, a fear that allows us to approach him with respect and reverence. Proverbs 9.10, a verse that might be familiar to many of us, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. This fear is not traumatic. It's not oppressive. It's an acknowledgement of the holiness of God that allows us to grow in wisdom. Taking God's holiness seriously means we live in awe of his holiness, in awe of his love, of his mercy upon us, and in awe of his continuous pursuit of us. It's an expression of our submission to him, to his plan and action for our salvation. How dare the Philistines place this ark in a manner that suggested the God of Israel had been defeated by Dagon. They joked with God's holiness and it did not end well. How dare the Israelites treat the ark like some sort of good luck charm. They joked with God's holiness and it did not end well. How dare we imagine that we know better than God as we make decisions about our lives, our families, our kids, our careers. Do we think that will end well? How dare we think of ourselves as somehow equal to God, so clever, so competent, so in control? Let's not joke with God's holiness. Secondly, let's put God in his rightful place. When we don't allow God to take the right place in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our workplaces, even in our church, it likely won't end well. If God is indeed holy and indeed a present, loving, restorative force in our world, then our hearts, our lives, our families, our marriages, our workplaces, and our church should honor him by putting him in his rightful place. Honor him as king. Serve him as loving savior. Worship him as mighty God. Love him as friend and brother. Put God in his rightful place. And the third thing I think we learn from this passage is that our idols should fall in God's presence. If God is really present in our lives, our idols should fall and smash to pieces. Do we place our idols next to God in a way that suggests that they might be equal to or even greater than God? Do we put our faith in money, in our employer, in certain relationships? Which idols of ours need to fall in God's presence? Let's not be defined by false gods. Is God our number one priority? Or is he on equal footing with our careers, our cash flow, our responsibilities? Do we place these things next to God rather than at his feet? And as we do so, are we building false idols for ourselves? All of this leads me to wonder, where is God's presence and holiness today? How do we think about living this out in a world where the only ark most people know is in an Indiana Jones movie? How do we think about living this out in a world where Jesus has made it possible for us to meet with God anywhere and for us to experience God's holiness and presence in the most unexpected places? The ark, whilst only a symbol, represented the holiness of God. Holiness that was so holy, it could not be looked upon by human eyes. 
When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, he had to burn incense, creating smoke that would veil the sight of the ark. Today, we don't have a physical ark. And so it's important for us to consider what it means when we think about God's presence and holiness in our lives today. Under this new covenant ushered in by Jesus' death on the cross, God's holiness is not represented by an ark, but by his kingdom, the now and not yet of his kingdom, where God sits on his throne as a king. Before he died, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now we often think of heaven as a nice fluffy place in the clouds for us to go to when we die, with angels floating around, playing the occasional harp, streets paved with gold. But that's not what scripture tells us. If we circle back to the quote from Tim Mackey at the Bible Project, it says, when we see moments in the Bible where a place represents Eden, as the ark did, it's usually Eden reappearing. Eden isn't just a place where heaven and earth symbolically meet. It's a place where literally heaven and earth are one. God's kingdom comes on earth when heaven and earth are one. Heaven and earth exist together. The Bible repeatedly talks about a new earth, a new creation, all pointing not to some place in the sky, but to a renewing and restoring of God's creation here on earth. Are we living our lives in ways that bring heaven and earth together? Are we living in ways that renew and restore God's creation? Are we living in ways that usher in God's kingdom and God's kingship? Are we living out our friendships, our marriages, in ways that allow God to be king? Does God reign in our households? Are our households Eden reappearing? Not just places where heaven and earth are some symbols, but places where they're one and the same. What does it mean for God to be on the throne? What does it mean for us to catch glimpses of God's kingdom in today's world? One thing this passage shows us for sure is that God is still God. Even when his people are headed in the wrong direction, or in this case in chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, not around at all, God is still on the throne, even when that throne is not honored. He's still holy, even in dark places. God is still present, even when we've abandoned ship. In 1 Samuel, we see the Israelites disregarding God. We see them dismissing him and his recommendations for how they should live their lives. However, in chapter 5, despite everything, we see that God is clearly still in control, clearly still acting in power, clearly still making himself known. The people of Ashdod and Gath and Ekron proclaimed that it was the God of Israel who was acting upon them. They didn't doubt God's power or God's presence. That was clear, even in a foreign land, even through a symbol like the ark, even in the darkest of places where the truth of God is typically not known. God didn't need the Israelites to follow the rules laid out in Exodus and Leviticus so that he could be God. He desired relationship with them, relationship for their sake, relationship that would restore them to the fullness of what they were created to be. 
Their worship of God was important, but it wasn't what made God God. We undermine God and his power when we think he is dependent on us to act. Even when we're far from him, he's still God. He will still show himself strong, whether we're in the room or not. God showed up in this passage, even though his people were nowhere to be found. And this story challenges this false dichotomy we've kind of created of spiritual versus secular. God doesn't need us to confine him to what we perceive to be holy or spiritual places. Growing up, our church hall was referred to as the sanctuary. And I will never forget this one guy who seemed to exist to make our lives as kids and youth miserable. His main job, at least on Sundays, seemed to be to tell us all the things we could not do in the sanctuary. You can't eat sweets, you can't bring drinks, you can't dress like that, you can't play drums too loud, you can't listen to that music, you can't have a water fight. That one was directed at the youth pastor. Um, The sanctuary seemed to be a holier place than even the church hall next door. Somehow having more of God's presence in ways that should inspire certain behaviors. The hall next door where deep conversations happened over tea and coffee and fellowship allowed for searching and transformation and hospitality modeled Jesus to strangers was somehow perceived as less holy. God can make himself known. He can reveal himself and his holiness in any manner of space. Our poorly conceived notion of creating and protecting holy spaces, often by excluding the unkempt, the badly behaved, the unruly, the not good enough, in devastating ways, does nothing to protect God's holy nature or to preserve his presence. I'm glad to share that in that same church, over time, God's holiness and presence was experienced in many different ways. In needle exchanges where heroin addicts came to collect clean needles. In nightclubs where they watched out for vulnerable young women in dance classes where families from the community were drawn in, in financial literacy classes supporting individuals who were third or fourth generation unemployed, in cocaine anonymous meetings where addicts came in search of healing and hope. In our own corrupted view of God, we've confined him to what we perceive to be holy spaces, assuming that God can only act there and in not what we might call secular or unholy spaces. We think of holy spaces being the spaces in which God can and does act, and secular spaces being those in which God cannot or will not act. Why would he want to? We like to move our way through life creating these false dichotomies, and we categorize music and musicians and food and drinks and places. But God can show himself strong in all of these places. If there's one persistent theme in this passage, it's this. God is still God. God is still God even when we persistently fail to listen. God is still God even when we put our faith in all the wrong things. God is still God even when we confine him to a box. God is still God even when we are completely off track. God is still God, even in all the wrong, unholy places. God is still God. He will always pursue the restoration of 
and reconciliation with us, his people. What does it mean that God is still God? He's still present. He's still holy. He's still in pursuit of our restoration. God is still God. As we think about these statements, God is still God, which one do you need to be reminded of today? Is it that God is still God, even in unholy places? Is it that God is still God, even when you or I are completely off track? Which one of these nudges us as a reminder that actually we can't change who God is? God will always love us. God will always pursue us. God will always seek to be present with us. In which of these situations do you need to be confident in God's holiness and presence? How does it make you feel that God is relentlessly chasing you? Not to punish you, but to love you, forgive you, restore you. Maybe we can stand together for the final few moments. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And as I do so, I just love us to just quietly reflect. What does it mean to us, to me, that God is still God? What does it mean to us that God is still God even when we persistently fail to listen? even when we put our faith in all the wrong things, even when we confine him to a box, God is still God. I want us to conclude with a prayer. And I want you to be able to to reach out your hands and ask for others to pray with you. If you're feeling, you don't know who this God is. The God you know is the oppressive father or the abusive boss the God you know is not someone who chases you with his love who relentlessly pursues restoration with you but that God sounds like somebody you'd like to get to know maybe you've been in church your whole life maybe you've been a Christian for years but that's not the God you've known and if you'd like someone to pray with you this morning just feel free to stretch out your hands where you are If you'd like to come to know this God who chases you down, who loves you, who pursues you relentlessly in all the unholy places. Maybe you've confined God to certain boxes. Maybe in your life, in your relationships, in your work, you've kept God locked up in a box. And it's time to experience God in all of the spaces, all of the places in your life the holy, the unholy, the dark, the light. Maybe it's time to invite God even into what we perceive to be the unholy places. And if that's you, again, just stretch out your hands and someone from the team will come and pray with you. Let me pray as we close. God, we thank you that you are holy, and, and Lord, you're so holy, we, we can't even begin to fathom, to understand, to get our heads around it. You're, you're just holy in a way that consumes us, that pursues us with your love in such an 
endless pursuit of showing us who you are, showing us how badly you want to restore us to what you created us to be. As you pursue us, Lord, even this morning, even in this space, help us to know that you are holy, to know that you are present, and to know that you love us, that your one aim is to restore us to yourself. Help us to know you, God, as loving Father. Help us to experience you wherever we are, no matter how far or how close, no matter what things we've done this week, no matter how evil we perceive our hearts to be. Thank you that you are God. Thank you that none of that changes how you love us and how you pursue us. We pray for each and every person here, Lord, that your presence would be real, that your pursuit of them would be felt, that your holiness would be revealed to them. May each of us experience you in a new way this morning, in a way that transforms us and allows us to live a new life of freedom in your love and in your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that you have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. Leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. May each of us experience now the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of Jesus.